1: Like climate change, the widespread degradation of ecosystems poses a real threat to human societies. Can technology help to monitor, model, and protect Earth's biodiversity? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Catherine Raik, The Economist's Environment Editor.
2: On today's show, the other environmental emergency. We're losing species at unprecedented scale and an unprecedented rate.
3: If we don't stop this decline, we'll be heading into what's called the sixth great extinction crisis.
0: I think we have an urgent need to start doing things now.
1: Earth is a bioengineered planet built and regulated by living things and the ecosystems that humans live in and depend on are sustained by a diversity of those living things. Food chains are complex webs of interconnected plants and animals. How many tree species there are in a patch of tropical forest can affect rainfall and therefore plant life in a neighbouring region. And many crops are pollinated by insects. Take skipjack tuna. They make up roughly half of the global tuna catch for human consumption. As young animals, the tuna eat zooplankton, which are tiny floating animals. And as adults, they eat smaller fish, squid and crustaceans. To conserve the skipjack tuna, all of the diversity in its food chain must also be conserved. But since the 1990s, alarmed by the rapid decline in animal and plant species, Ecologists have talked about an impending mass extinction.
3: Around the world, biodiversity is in steep decline, particularly in the tropics, because of loss of habitat and poaching of species.
1: Eric Dinerstein is the director of the Biodiversity and Wildlife Solutions Program at Resolve, a non-profit organization. He spoke to us from Washington, DC, accompanied by the murmur of the ongoing cicada outbreak.
3: If we don't stop this decline, we'll be heading into what's called the sixth great extinction crisis in the history of our planet.
1: The loss of biodiversity is the result of a combination of factors, climate change, pollution, the exploitation of land, sea, plants and animals, and the displacement of some species into new territories. Humans have a hand in all of this. The biodiversity crisis has just a fraction of the public profile of climate change, Yet the risks to humanity are comparable. But, like in the climate crisis, technology is showing
2: great promise. The explosion of technology from genomics, sensors, GPS, photo, videos, as well as the methodologies like crowdsourcing, machine learning, artificial intelligence has enabled the biologists to get more data in more ways at different scales and resolutions. Tania Berger-Wolf is a professor of computer science and ecology at Ohio State University. We're losing species at unprecedented scale and an unprecedented rate. And the problem is that our current methods are not even keeping up with the basic numbers. We don't have the basic data of what we're losing and how fast. How can we make policy decisions, put the right resources assess our conservation actions if we don't have the data on more than half of the species. So the technology that we create aims to address that gap in having the basic data, who, where, when.
1: Professor Berger-Wolf is also the co-founder of a conservation software nonprofit called Wild Me.
2: In my own work, we look at the entire pipeline of getting data, making sense of data, analyzing data and getting insight from that data in the context of conservation. As an example, we can use images from different sources and then combine them and extract information out of them. For example, we use machine learning to get images from any source, whether it's scientists, field assistants, camera traps, autonomous vehicles, in the air, land and water, as well as people just going and taking pictures As well as in their backyard and then what machine learning can do is help us take all these millions of images figure out which ones contain animals in them what are the species of those animals we can take it all the way down to identifying individual animal by the patterns of their spots stripes wrinkles and notches those are like fingerprints that humans have identifying each individual this
1: sensing technology offers conservationists a wealth of data for monitoring
2: species. One of the first examples of the use of that technology is whale shark, the largest fish on Earth. We can use machine learning and computer vision to take images from scientists as well as people just posting their vacation videos on YouTube and other social media and identify which ones contain that whale shark and what are exactly the individuals in each image and and video, so by the pattern of the spots. So then with information on when and where the image was taken, we can use this collection of images, no matter where in the world they're coming from, to track an individual, to count the population, to identify the species range, just from the sightings that are evident through these images. The data provides important insights but it isn't without its drawbacks. The first drawback is that there's a huge bias that is inherent in this kind of data because we're only getting the pictures from where people are taking them. And then we're really constrained by where people go, what they actually see when they get there. When they decide to take a picture, we're trying to reconstruct the picture of the species from these very imperfect sources. The second challenge is collections of geotagged animal images, particularly of endangered species, are really, unfortunately, a great source of information for wildlife criminals. Having information that a rare animal, an endangered species, an elephant or a tiger, or even a whale shark, was sighted at this location at this time, within the span of the last two hours, can really bring poachers to that location.
1: This is problematic, as poaching is driving some species to
2: extinction. In January 2020, a selfie with an elephant from South Africa was posted on social media and within hours there was a poaching attempt. Happily unsuccessful, but elephant poaching in Kruger National Park resulted in 71 elephants killed just in 2018. In many parks today, you will see signs that say, please turn off your geotagging, but most people are not even aware that their cell phones or other devices actually put the location and time information on their images. And when they post those on social media, then that information also becomes available. Fortunately, cameras can also be used to detect poachers
1: as well as wild animals.
3: One of the unpublicized crises during the recent COVID pandemic is poaching has been on an increase and the park guards themselves are strapped to try and cover large areas.
1: Eric Dinnerstein again.
3: Our technology, TrailGuard, uses the latest AI to better protect national parks and conserve that wildlife. TrailGuard is an AI-infused camera-based alert system that functions like a burglar alarm for national parks.
1: Trailguard AI is a smart camera trap that uses machine learning to identify poachers in high-risk areas.
3: Sharp-eyed poachers could easily find the kinds of camera traps that people have typically put out to detect movement of humans in and around parks. The advantage of Trailguard is it's tiny. It's no bigger than my index finger, and it's easy to hide high up in the tree because the AI that's in the camera doesn't care at what angle the camera is to the ground or to where the poacher might walk on a trail. That makes it essentially invisible.
1: Once the device has detected what it thinks is a poacher, it sends an image to the head office of the park.
3: From beginning to end, from when a poacher might trigger the camera to receiving that image at the headquarters of a park can be less than 50 seconds and that's magical.
1: But another problem with using any sort of sensor in the field is that batteries can easily run out.
3: To conserve on battery life, we have to make sure that only true positives, pictures of poachers are being sent and using up that precious battery that we have in the camera. And so we do that by running an AI algorithm that detects humans, but rejects all other objects that trigger it. And in that way, by greatly reducing what we call false positives, we're able to send just the true images that are of need, and that greatly reduces the power consumption.
1: Eric Dinnerstein believes that Trailguard AI has applications beyond detecting poachers.
3: By just varying the kind of AI model that we run in the software on our device, we can address many other conservation problems. For example, We have a model that detects logging trucks, whether they're full or empty, and that's vital because in many tropical countries, up to 90% of the logging that goes on is illegal. And that leads to massive losses of revenue for those countries.
1: Technologies like this aren't the only innovations that are having an impact on conservation. In recent years, the field has grown rapidly with the use of everything from camera traps to radio tags on the rise. One group is using LIDAR and spectrometers mounted on an airplane to map forests and everything in them, down to the species of individual trees and their carbon content. While sensors are helping to monitor and protect species... Computer models can help understand what is driving the degradation of different ecosystems and can help design solutions as well.
4: Having biodiversity and ecosystem models is absolutely essential, because they allow us to explore the consequences of our actions and to to predict what might happen if we follow different pathways into the future.
1: Tim Newbold is a senior research fellow at University College London's Centre for Biodiversity and Environment Research. His work is based around the development of large-scale models of ecosystems.
4: So exactly in the same way that climate models allow us to ask what would happen if we emit so many greenhouse gases, these sort of biodiversity and ecosystem models allow us to explore what the consequences of our activities might be for biodiversity and ecosystems. Biodiversity and ecosystems are supporting us as humans through countless natural processes, things like seed dispersal and pollination and control of agricultural pests, regulation of disease. And so we need to know what's going to happen in the future. We can't do that without models.
1: Even if sensors and ecologists could log the identity and location of every living creature on the planet the data would be worth little without an understanding of how everything relates to everything else.
4: Ecosystem models try to capture as much as we can of all of the life on Earth. They capture everything from the the tiniest invertebrates up to the biggest whales. And we've made a lot of progress in the past
1: few years. The most complex models are complete computer simulations of ecosystems that are built from the bottom up hundreds of mathematical equations are combined to represent all the possible interactions between animals plants and the environment and climate around them
4: we need these sorts of mathematical ecosystem models because they allow us to understand the whole system and and particularly to understand where there might be sort of cascading effects so you know if we lose one group of species what effect might that have on the rest of the ecosystem
1: You can think of these models as functioning virtual ecosystems that experiments can be run on with no consequences for the real world. Similar models have been instrumental in climate change research and policy, but ecosystem models are at a very early stage compared to the climate ones.
4: The climate system is much more predictable, compared with natural ecosystems which behave rather unpredictably and have many, many complex interactions between different animals and plants and their environment.
1: Simulating how conscious living organisms interact is far more complicated than simulating the movement and reactions of molecules in the atmosphere. So far, the Maddingley is the only ecosystem model to represent life on land as well as in the oceans.
4: The Maddingley model was the first attempt to model whole ecosystems across both the oceans and ecosystems on land. And we started developing that in 2011 and it was first published in in 2014. And so this model, it tries to capture the way that organisms exist within ecosystems. So their birth, the way that they eat each other and, and use energy the way that they produce offspring, and then finally um, how they die.
1: The Maddingly model breaks the land and the ocean down into grid cells that are up to 200 square kilometres. Climatic conditions are set for each cell, which are also populated with organisms. We've
4: performed a few experiments already with the Maddingly model. So in one set of experiments, we looked at what would happen if we took different amounts of plant matter out of ecosystems. What we saw when we removed plants from the system was that certain um, bits of those ecosystems were permanently lost. So even if we we stopped impacting those systems, bits of the ecosystem never came back.
1: This research gives scientists an idea of a sort of tipping point for expanding agriculture. They found that once 80% of plant life was removed, food chains were irreversibly altered.
4: In fact, at the moment, we are trying to scale up this sort of work to look at how these sorts of things could cascade not only within ecosystems, but also across ecosystems. So, you know, if we start removing more and more natural habitat, does there come a point where we see irreversible changes across whole landscapes rather than just within one specific ecosystem?
1: Another group of researchers used the Mattingly to simulate what happens when you remove all large predators, in this case, all those that are heavier than 21 kilograms.
4: What they found was that the removal of these top predators had a profound effect on the whole ecosystem. It led to this fundamental rewiring of the the ecosystem and the effects of the removal of those top predators rippled all the way down and even changed the amount of plants within those ecosystems. And in some cases, the loss of more than half of the plants within an ecosystem just from the removal of those very top predators.
1: Why is that? Why do you end up having this unexpected consequence on plants?
4: When We remove top predators. You get increases in the things that they would have eaten and then decreases in the in the things that those would have eaten an increment all the way down. And so these sorts of things have been theorized for a long time and, and shown to have happened in a few particular ecosystems, but this was an attempt to show how that might happen in a whole ecosystem model. And this really illustrates you know, why we need these models that capture all of the components of ecosystems, because otherwise we, we're not able to predict when these sorts of cascading effects might happen.
1: Marine ecosystem models are also being used to determine how fishing and climate change are likely to alter fisheries around the world. Marine fisheries provide 11% of all the animal protein that humans consume. The Fisheries and Marine Ecosystem Model Intercomparison Project, or FISHMIP, develops standardised scenarios for how the climate and fishing patterns might change in future. These scenarios can then be run across all global and regional marine ecosystem models, so results can be combined to produce more robust projections. But ecosystem modelling still has some way to go.
4: We need a lot more time and resources invested in modelling biodiversity and ecosystems to bring the state of ecosystem modelling to a level akin to that of the climate models. And there are encouraging signs already. Many more governments now are putting a much higher priority on biodiversity than they have in the past. But fundamentally, we just need to accelerate our work on biodiversity and ecosystems.
1: A lot has been made of conservation technology's potential, yet the biodiversity crisis is deepening. Coming up, is a different approach needed? In spite of all the technological innovation for conservation, the rate of documented extinctions is accelerating.
0: The technology currently being deployed in conservation is having some wonderful local impacts, but we are far, far short by orders of magnitude of the potential.
1: Evan Rappaport is the Senior Technology Fellow at Conservation International, an American nonprofit. He argues that there needs to be more collaboration between technologists and conservationists.
0: People who have worked in conservation for decades, they're brilliant, passionate, and have achieved so much while so few people cared about what they did. Against the odds of massive companies and governments that weren't cooperating, unfortunately, we need more. We need the big tech companies to be able to leverage the systems that they have built to help conservation, we need ideas to actually be hatched by people who work in conservation. Unfortunately, most people in conservation have little to no training in technology. And so they're just simply not capable of coming up with new applications for anything from sensors to artificial intelligence to robotics. And this is not from lack of intelligence. It's not lack of passion. It's simply lack of training.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that that might seem a little bit harsh. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of technologies and a lot of new technologies being either invented or applied to the conservation field. Is is that because we're starting to see a new generation of sort of conservation technologists entering the field? Or is it sort of ecologists who are, in fact, learning those skills
0: I mean, there's there's everything. And the, the problem is, is it's like 1% of what it actually needs to be. So there's wonderful examples of really great conservation tech that have been developed either by software engineers or product managers or designers who have moved over into the conservation field or by ecologists who have figured out how to hack things together and make it. So it's not to take away from great things. Wildlife Insights at Conservation International is a wonderful collaboration with Google, and they're applying artificial intelligence to tracking animals through camera traps. It's an excellent project. It needs to be like 100 times bigger to achieve the goals that it has. When you design technology, you need to think about scale from the very beginning. You have to think about what do I do to build a minimum viable product so that I can keep going? But what does this actually look like when it's working with a billion users or when it's deployed in thousands and thousands of locations?
1: How do we get to this world where ecology is able to launch things on the scale that's required?
0: I think we have an urgent need to start doing things now, and we can't wait to train a new generation we should be doing that as well but what we really need are bridge builders we need people who understand enough about the technology and who understand enough about conservation to get the two groups to work together we need people who are in the funding world to understand that they have to be able to take risks they can't keep funding things that are guaranteed to work because when you define working as too small to solve the big problem it's not really working
1: evan Rappaport believes that those bridge builders can look at the problems faced by conservationists from an outsider's perspective
0: the vision i have for the future of tech in conservation is something i kind of jokingly call product managers without borders this would be technologists that go out into the field and ask lots of questions of the conservationists who are facing these problems on a daily basis. These would be people who are really great at solving problems, but don't really know very much about the actual problems in conservation. And so by doing this discovery process, they'll start to identify things that they would never have learned if they had just sat in their offices in San Francisco.
1: Getting big tech engineers to work with conservationists can be challenging, but it may be an essential part of the solution.
0: This will absolutely not be solved by technologists alone, and it will absolutely not be solved by conservationists alone. We need both groups to work together towards solutions that we can't even dream of right now. Not everyone is going to like technology coming in to solving some of these problems, because it is disruptive. And we sometimes celebrate the term disruptive in Silicon Valley, but we have to remember that it is actually Um, not a good thing for most people. Unfortunately, the problems that we're facing are really big and we can't wait for everyone to agree. We as a world need a portfolio of approaches that include some of these high-risk, crazy technology ideas and that also includes some of the great fundamental work that have been getting done for decades. But we need all of it.
2: Tanya Berger-Wolf agrees that technology is far from a silver bullet. Technology is really not going to remove predators at that moment, and uh, it may suggest what the changing conditions of the habitat are, but it is humans who will have to take action. Technology is not the answer to really understanding life. Technology and computational approaches can really help us sort through data, find patterns in all of that data and maybe provide some basis for hypotheses of what's going on. But the deep understanding about what is actually going on has to come from humans, from scientists who are studying the systems, who really understand the systems, and really the ability to adjust the centuries-old or decades-old scientific models to new types of data, to new types of data integration and new ways of seeing the world. Beyond scientists,
1: policymakers also need to understand the scale of the crisis, as Eric Dinnerstein explains.
3: All of the technology in the world, no matter how accurate and no matter how widespread it is, cannot compensate if we don't have the political will to use that information and protect life on Earth. And that's absolutely critical. It's fair to say that Right now, humanity is on a trajectory that's heading off a cliff. And we have to do an environmental U-turn. And technology can help us tremendously by focusing on what to save and how well we're doing in saving it. But it can never take the place of courageous action by all of us to try to save humanity and try to save the wildlife heritage that we still have on the planet.
1: Thanks to an explosion of technologies over the last couple of decades, researchers now understand life on Earth and the crisis that it faces better than ever before. If funding and systemic challenges can be overcome, future technologies can make a real difference in solving this crisis. But they can never do so on their own. As politicians and businesses finally wake up to the climate problem, it remains to be seen whether they can do the same for biodiversity our thanks to eric Dinnerstein, tanya Berger wolf tim newbold and evan Rappaport. and thank you for listening to babbage to read my technology quarterly on protecting biodiversity go to economist.com slash technology quarterly You can find out more about how to monitor, model, and protect ecosystems, from how citizen scientists are contributing data to the role of DNA as a conservation tool, and how in vitro fertilization technologies promise to bring species back from the dead. If you're not a subscriber of The Economist, you can get a special introductory deal by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. The producer is Jason Hoskin, Thanks also to Abisoye Soye and Rory Galloway for additional production support. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Catherine Baïk, and in London, this is The Economist.